What will computing look like in the future, in 10, 50, 100 years? It's a question I've been pondering a lot over this series, and it's a question that people have asked for more than a century. If you do a Google search for the term retrofuturism, one of the images you'll find is an illustration from the 1930s. It's two women sitting at an outdoor cafe. They're wearing pilot jumpsuits. There's a flying car parked behind them. And they're both holding small mirrors attached to handheld telephones, doing video calls with friends. It feels amazingly current. Well, maybe not the flying car, but certainly the video chatting over brunch. There are a lot of illustrations like this from the early 20th century depicting futuristic technology, virtual reality goggles, self-driving cars, even mainframe computers that resemble today's data centers. These imagined futures came from popular culture, from science fiction writers, artists, and futurists. They were created out of a faith that computers would keep improving. And then in the middle of the 20th century, that faith was codified into a kind of law, Moore's Law. And Moore's Law is this technology trend where, uh, like clockwork, every couple of years or so on, you can shrink your technology so that you get a lot more compute for the same cost. Remember Partha Ranganathan from our tour in episode two? Partha helps design computing infrastructure for data centers. And Moore's Law is the reason why he can design new generations of warehouse computers more quickly than ever. It's also the reason that some of those futuristic visions I just talked about have become a reality. And Moore's Law is fantastic because that's what underpins uh, a whole bunch of the uh, innovation that you see in the industry. Everything from self-driving cars to uh, uh, smartwatches to uh, big cloud computing and so on. We take it for granted that the next generation of computers and smartphones will always be better than the last. And we expect that apps powered by data centers, stuff like real-time navigation, videos you stream, and instant language translation, those will always get smarter. But what if computers don't keep improving? What happens when Moore's Law slows down or just comes to an end? If Moore's Law slows down, that's a pretty fundamental technology change that we all have to start thinking about because you cannot now take for granted the increasing compute every generation or so. And so what that means is you're now going to have to start thinking about some fundamentally different technology paradigms. So do you ever have like nightmares in the middle of the night about the end of Moore's Law? Do I have nightmares about the end of Moore's Law? I do lose sleep, but um, I I think we'll get past that. And and again, the history of computing is uh, rife with instances where we have seen something that seems like an unsurmountable challenge, and then we have applied amazing innovation and uh, technology, and we have gotten through. So I don't think this time will be any different. This is Where the Internet Lives, a podcast from Google about the unseen world of data centers. I'm Barry Fisher. I'm a data storyteller at Google, and I'm your guide through the physical places that make the internet run, places that very few people get to see firsthand. So far in the series, we've heard about how data centers are designed, how they work together across a global network, how they operate on clean energy, and the lengths people go to protect them. In this episode, the future of data centers. The end of Moore's Law is forcing a dramatic shift in how we design and network computers. What does it mean for the warehouse-scale machines that run the internet, and for a world that's come to depend on them? Before we try to sort through the implications of Moore's Law, let's turn to a broader question. What will data centers even look like decades out into the future? Oh, Barry. Um, 
that, you know. <laughs> the million dollar question. Oh. We didn't say it was an easy question. Data centers are evolving so quickly, it's impossible to know exactly what they'll become. Almost things we can't even imagine. One of the things that's amazing about cloud computing is it provides relatively infinite scale infrastructure. When I think about the future of cloud computing, uh, it democratizes scale. It essentially gives everyone an access to a supercomputer at a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the effort. There are going to be huge opportunities as we enter what's called the fourth industrial revolution. That's really when computing moves to the edge and you use data centers and IoT edge computing over networks to really deliver a whole new set of services that I think we can see around the corner as to what they are, but the possibilities are huge. I couldn't even imagine that we could time shift a data center when I started here eight years ago. That's just one innovation, but I hope that there's hundreds of innovations like that that trickle down even to you and me in our homes, right? There is a tremendous effort on machine learning and automation to try to give us more intelligent services. And what we would hope is that the services that we were using would be proactive, prescriptive, you know, tell us if they see problems ahead of time. So those have been some of the real futuristic things that people are trying to do. So all of these applications at their core need incredible advances in computing, incredible increases in compute and storage. And to get all of that, you're going to have to build new systems. You're going to have to build new computers. You're going to have to build new data centers to host those computers. I think robotics will be an essential part of data centers, and that will change the shape of how our machines are laid out as well. We'll be able to actually have equipment that's more three-dimensionally laid out. And I think robotics will make data centers look very, very different, not 20 years from now, I think within the next five years. And I think it's going to be especially fun for our folks in our data centers, too. We have teams that are working on next generation servers and storage and network systems. We have to take all of their roadmaps and make sure we're going to be designing data centers that will accept all of those new future technologies that are coming out in the next couple of years. Now, we're nowhere near the end. What is the endpoint. Is there one? I think I think the way hmm, the end, that's an interesting concept. Clearly there is no single destiny for data centers. It's a continuous process of change. And that brings us to JP Clausen, the VP of Engineering for Advanced Technology Innovation at Google Data Centers. He's tasked with making these warehouse computers better, faster, cleaner and cheaper. What we do is that we find new clever ways to design, build, power, and cool data centers. Perhaps we don't even need to look decades out to know where we're headed. We can turn to successful models right now. Before Google, JP worked for two other innovative companies, Lego and Tesla. He was a key mind behind Tesla's Gigafactory, the groundbreaking facility in Nevada that pumps out batteries and electric cars. Against all odds, you know, Tesla is, is really focusing on battery technology and, and uh, owning the entire supply chain. And for that, I was, I was really like learning a lot about integrated um, manufacturing and, and of course, ensuring that we do as much as, as we could ourselves to produce the car from raw material to finished goods. Tesla has disrupted the car industry and re-engineered the manufacturing process, similar to how Google disrupted the computing industry and re-engineered data centers. And that mission guides JP. He still feels dazzled every time he walks into one of these campus-sized computers. 
But he's also thinking, how can we do this differently? I can't help myself every time I go there and say, well, this is like, could we do this with a smaller footprint? Could we, you know, squeeze more in here? Is it possible to to build it a little bit different? And can we, you know, improve the velocity of, of how fast we're building those things? JP is partly thinking about far-off technologies, but he's mostly thinking about how to productize data centers to meet the world's ever-growing demand for the internet. So I think it's really important that we we think about um, the data center as the product and and then think about how can we actually create the supply chain of components and manufacturing capacity that builds those factories, right? And this is where JP's Lego expertise comes in handy. I think Lego is probably the example that, you know, everybody's using when, when you talk about the modular systems, right? In episode three, we talked about data center construction in terms of assembling Legos. JP believes this modular approach can be improved a lot more. We are going away from kind of the bespoke design to a, a more repeatable design where we can actually you know, adopt to the local constraints that we have in, in different places. It's almost like plug and play on the sites, right? So you can envision they are prefabricated, they come in on trucks and, and you kind of offload them, you attach them on the pad and you actually connect them with, uh, with harness, right? So what is the point of all this modularity? Well, the idea is to scale up rapidly in local areas where internet demand is booming. For example, 40 million people in Southeast Asia connected to the web for the first time in 2020, a record pace. And the ongoing pandemic has caused spikes in internet use all across the globe. We actually can make a, a, a better distributed and faster implementation of our capacity around the world. And it's, it's really about, you know, being in, in Mumbai or Tokyo or or even being in, in, in Latin America. And, and we can enable that if we think out of the box and we really try to understand how our modular data center truly can be deployed in, in all kind of places and formats. And on top of all this, JP has to think about the sustainability piece, how to manage the electricity, mechanical designs, and supply chain to make the data center as energy efficient and carbon-free as possible. Could you even be working on anything bigger in terms of large-scale systems that you have to optimize than a hyperscale data center? Well, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of important problems to solve in the world. So I think there is, um, you know, hyperscale compute, which is absolutely something that we are benefiting from. Just to think about the, the crisis that we're going through right now uh, if we were not able to connect, right? So I, I, I definitely believe that uh, hyperscale compute and, and how we actually think about our data center footprint and how we, you know, make sure that everybody have access to, to communication is, is absolutely paramount for the future. And it's also paramount for the present, right? So I think, honestly, I don't think I could work on something that is, is greater than that in the moment. So that's the kind of big picture stuff happening right now to build data centers. Modularity, scalability, efficiency, and sustainability. But what about the computing infrastructure inside? If we consider the way machines are designed and networked, there's another problem that JP and his colleagues are still wrestling with. The end of Moore's Law. We are in a black swan event, right? So it's a perfect uh, storm. So Moore's Law isn't really a law. It's a historical trend identified by Intel's co-founder, Gordon Moore. In 1965, he predicted that the number of components that you could cram onto an integrated circuit would double every year for a decade. In other words, computer chips would get exponentially faster and cheaper. 
And he absolutely nailed this prediction. And then in 1975, Moore extended his forecast. He projected that the number of transistors on a chip would double every two years for the foreseeable future. And he was right again. Since the 70s, this trend has held steady. But it's slowing down. If you go online and look up Moore's Law, you'll see some really alarming headlines. Like there's one from a leading tech magazine that reads, we're not prepared for the end of Moore's Law. And another says, Moore's Law really is dead this time. So what does it mean? Is the technology inside data centers going to reach some sort of plateau? Well, Partha thinks just the opposite. In some respects, I think we are in... um in the gold rush era. So we are in the uh, ground floor of the next big golden age of uh, system design. The decline of Moore's law is happening at the same time that the demand for artificial intelligence and machine learning is exploding. And these competing trends are redefining the way servers inside data centers are used. One of the things I spend a lot of time thinking about is uh, software-defined infrastructure. How do I make sure that I don't think of hardware in isolation, but I think of hardware wrapped up with all the layers of software so that I can um, uh, pull out the next uh, multiple epochs of efficiency uh, that uh, otherwise uh, I would have gotten from Moore's Law. So let's explore this golden age of system design a little further. And a good place to start is with software. There's a tendency to think about the performance of a computer as being the hardware. Here's another voice you might recognize from earlier in the series, Carrie Grimes Bostock. She, like Partha, is an engineering fellow at Google. She figures out what machines to use in data centers and how to squeeze the best performance out of those machines. It depends on how you write your software, not just on the hardware. So there's a dual nature to the Moore's Law problem that our opportunities to combat Moore's Law aren't simply to do with physically making the hardware faster or developing new types of hardware. Data centers aren't just designed for raw computing power. They're designed to be useful. And that means supporting increasingly complex applications. Fifteen years ago, you didn't talk to your phone and expect it to do searches for you and understand your colloquial language and learn your kid's name, right? And now we expect that. So people like Carrie and Partha can get much more work out of computing networks by controlling them in clever ways with software, sometimes doubling performance. And so you have, you know, often 2x headroom in the amount of work you can do on the same piece of hardware if you're willing to put the time in to do it. And that's given us a lot of breathing room to really support explosive application growth without worrying too much about the hardware. What does this mean in practice? Maribel Lopez is the founder of Lopez Research, a technology consulting firm. So several things have happened with both cloud computing and infrastructure that make it much more interesting now. As Maribel describes it, data centers have shifted from being a physical box to a virtual box by using software to create many working servers out of a single machine. And it's called virtualization. So we can make one thing look like many things and In that partitioning, everybody can put either different applications or different companies' data can be put into what would be a logical pipe as opposed to a physical pipe. This approach has its limits. At a certain point, you run into a ceiling. As AI workloads expand, for example, they require vastly more computing power, more than what enhanced software can offer. Artificial intelligence or AI is a a quest that computer scientists have been on for the last 70 years where 
uh, we try to build software that emulates parts of the human mind. And people like John Platt are testing that limit. John is a computer scientist at Google who leads research into applying AI to science. Human beings can see, we can hear, we can understand, we can read, we can reason. So that's always been a grand challenge in computer science for decades. Only recently have we been able to really chip away at that grand challenge. Here's Maribel Lopez again. Picture a world where there's 20 screens in a room and each of them are telling you something different. And you've got to look at all of them all the time and try to figure out what's going on. We're moving out of that world to a world where you have one or two screens. Today, that human-like ability to process information touches more and more of the products we use every day. It's also helping researchers like John take on some of the world's biggest problems. Well, I think one of the most pressing problems in the 21st century is, in fact, climate change. John is using machine learning to develop experimental clean energy technology. Fusion energy is the energy that powers the sun. And it, if we could get it to work on Earth, it would give us effectively limitless zero carbon energy. But no one has been able to solve that for 70 years. It's an extremely difficult engineering problem. So we've been using machine learning to try to understand, help scientists understand plasma. Uh, plasma is the material that the sun is made out of, and that's what we try to fuse on Earth. And this brings us to another innovation happening inside data centers. You couldn't run the kind of simulations that John's team is running with only general purpose central processing units, or CPUs. It would require too much hardware. Again, here's Kerry Grimes Bostock. You can't have so many CPUs that they cover the earth for no other reason than that operating them would be impractical, right? And, and as your fleet starts to contain so many physical objects, managing them, upgrading them, it's an incredible overload. We obviously can't cover the earth in CPUs, which is why we're seeing the rise of new kinds of processors. They're sort of one of the next big waves. These specialized processors, often called accelerators, are brilliant at certain tasks. They really enable these large applications in a way that the CPU growth curve pre 10 years ago might not have even, right? We need sort of a, a big kind of regime change in how these processors work and what they do. Here's Partha to explain how accelerators work. So basically, um, when you design computers, you're building hardware to run some workloads. And uh, because you don't know what workloads you're going to run, uh, you're going to be uh, designing systems uh, that are generalist. So an accelerator is a specialist. An accelerator is designed for one particular thing at a time. And so it's almost like saying, hey, I know I'm going to be doing an electrical job. So I'm going to hire the world's best electrician who is going to come in and do the work in half an hour versus if I hired a general contractor who is going to take maybe half a day to do that. And that's really the essence of an accelerator is I can deliver the performance you want for a specific workload at much better energy efficiency, at much better area efficiency, and both of that translates to at much better cost efficiency. Let's focus on an accelerator that Google built specifically for machine learning. It's called a Tensor Processing Unit, or TPU. Google has installed TPUs at data centers around the world, unlocking all kinds of new applications. One area where conventional computers still face serious challenges is predicting natural disasters. 
floods affect hundreds of millions of people every year. Uh, they cause between thousands and tens of thousands of fatalities every year. And yet, the harms of flooding are incredibly preventable. Salanevo is a software engineer at Google. He works on machine learning for positive social impact. A few years ago, Sela's team partnered with scientists who build computer models to forecast floods in India and Bangladesh. Our job is to find out what areas are going to be flooded in the upcoming days and warn people about them. Sela learned from locals in flood-prone regions that they often won't evacuate until waters have reached waist height, a really dangerous time, unless they get the right kind of alerts. And the best alerts are hyper-specific about location and water height. But it's very hard to create those kinds of granular models for floods across a wide region. Say someone lives in a village a mile away from the Ganges River. How do they know if a six-foot rise in water will reach them? So for that, we have uh, what we call the hydraulic model. The hydraulic model simulates the water's behavior across the floodplain. So it assumes that I already know what the river is going to do, but let's see, okay, now that water is kind of pouring out everywhere, where will it go and what will happen? That translates into a lot of precise, actionable information for more than 250 million people. But it also takes a lot of raw computing power to train the machine learning algorithm and to run it in real time. And that can sometimes be, you know, hundreds of thousands of computation hours. Which presented a problem for conventional CPUs. And it's why Google built custom hardware for machine learning. There's very specialized hardware inside of a data center. We've made these chips called TPU or tensor processing units that are very, very good at doing the computations deep inside of these machine learning models. Here's John Platt again. If you wrap them into all this machine learning software, then you can get software that adapts to data. Then you feed large amounts of data and it gets uh, very, very clever. And so it's really the, the direction is provided by the AI. Each CPU can process only a handful of calculations at a time. TPUs can process many thousands of calculations, which speeds things up by orders of magnitude. So instead of waiting for hundreds of thousands of hours, we distribute them across uh, Google supercomputers. When all this data from Sela's team hits the TPUs and data centers, these processors work in groups. So it's not just thousands of calculations, it's actually millions of calculations at once. And that's where people like Danny Ma, a technician at Google's data center in Changhua County, Taiwan, make sure everything's running smoothly. So if you search for a uh, machine learning uh, platform in Google Data Center, you'll probably see a lot of pictures from the internet and Probably you, you'll see a lot of racks uh, with machines um, wired together. Danny specializes in machine learning infrastructure like TPUs. Conventional data center servers are wired more like single computational units. But in a pod of TPUs, each processor has all these wires connecting into neighboring processors. Uh, for TPU machines, actually, we um, use other um, fibers and 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 cables to connect them directly together, but not to the server. It's a unit-to-unit connection. These pods of TPUs are designed to handle lots of math at incredible speeds. If we call a TPU a cell, then the array of TPUs um, constructs a super brain. That TPU super brain is what Sela depends on when the monsoon season arrives in India. Even though we knew when the monsoon season starts, 
you don't know in advance, or at least not much in advance, uh, when uh, actual flooding is going to start. So we spent about two months waiting, kind of every, every day looking at the forecast to see whether there's going to be a flood until we set out our first alert. And then it actually happened when I was actually on vacation, and I suddenly get an automatic email that our system sends, which said, flood alert sent. <laughs> uh, now we need to check that it, actually, that it actually works. After the alert went out, Sela compared satellite images of the flooded area with the model's predictions, and it was remarkably accurate. This is, this is the dream, this is what I came here to do. Uh, it, ac- it actually is a reality. You know, you can try and quantify it in different ways, uh, and you'd get things like it's a thousand times more accurate or ten thousand times more accurate. But the, I think the, the bottom line is that really this is information that just didn't exist before. TPUs and machine learning were just one puzzle piece of this new early flood warning system. Other teams were running on-the-ground data collection and partnerships with local organizations to make the project happen. But the model itself may not have worked without this cutting-edge computing infrastructure. I think there's a long list of problems where in the modern world we have just tons and tons of data about. Um, And there's also... Uh, a ton of problems, not necessarily the same ones, but with some intersection, where really the modeling there that is necessary or the computation that is necessary really is enormous. And it might not have worked without the help of people running these computers, like Danny Ma. So I guess I'm kind of uh, like the, uh, the worker who built the uh, skyscraper. I'm just a worker but I built a skyscraper and people are amazed by the building. You feel satisfied, though people don't know who you are. Well, to me, it appears to me it's just a bunch of hardware's running with LEDs shining, but I know um, somewhere in the world, uh, there are people uh, using it for um, scientific needs. As we've heard, these computational needs, not just in science, but across society, are multiplying. And at the same time that Moore's Law is ending. And this is spawning a so-called Cambrian explosion of application-specific processors, like TPUs. Here's Partha explaining it in a keynote. Now, when I start talking about uh, this uh, literal uh, Cambrian explosion of accelerators, I think one of the big disruptions that you can expect to see in the future is uh, this notion that we are going to try to increase the speed of how we develop, design, uh, deploy accelerators. Google is working on multiple kinds of these processors. In the future, if you walk into a data center, you'll likely see many different types of devices working alongside CPUs and TPUs, including, and this is an unusual one, refrigerated computers. In fact, you can see a prototype of one right now, sitting in the Google Quantum AI lab. You're going to see these large cylinders. Those are the, the dilution refrigerators. The chip itself is small. It's sort of the size of a, a nail. And it's just inside the refrigerator. And then you hear the pumps. Sergio Boixo leads the quantum computer science team, part of the group that has built a quantum processor. And if TPUs are at the front edge of our computing solar system, then quantum computing is in a whole different universe. The chips themselves, they're microfabricated as other semiconductor chips, but with semiconductors, but then they have to be cooled down to a really cool temperature at 15 millikelvin, which is 
200 times colder than empty space, right? You really have to cool things down below any other point in the universe. This astronomically cold temperature changes the physical properties of a specially designed microchip. It enables calculations that are out of reach for current computers. Sergio is optimistic that these quantum processors will usher in a new era of computation. I think they will open a new industrial revolution where we can really design processes, chemical processes, physical processes, more energy efficient processes in general, in a, in a way that is now impossible because we could simulate how medicines work or we can simulate how fertilizers are uh, produced. As in running the equations to simulate molecules. For example, how a drug will act when it enters the human body or how two chemicals in an experimental battery will interact or how to more precisely model greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Even data centers or supercomputers have a very hard time solving these equations, simulating these equations. And the reason is um, that classical computers, even data centers, they work with classical logic. And quantum mechanics, it just uses a different kind of logic. When you get down to the smallest level of physics, the quantum level, the rules of the universe get really weird. An electron is not just in one place around the nucleus, right? An electron is like a wave, and it can be in many places kind of at the same time. It's in a, it's what is called a superposition. It's not just in one position, it's in a superposition of many places. So you build that weirdness right into the computer. In classical computers, as Sergio calls them, the smallest piece of information, a bit, can be a one or a zero. In quantum computers, it can be both at the same time. It's a little mind-bending. Quantum mechanics does have this reputation that is very counterintuitive. But it's this one bizarre feature that allows quantum computers to process much, much more information than classical computers. Sergio's team was working to build a quantum computer able to solve a calculation that would be virtually impossible for a classical machine to handle. And in 2019, with a quantum computer called Sycamore, they did it. In 200 seconds, Sycamore ran a calculation that the world's most powerful supercomputer would need 10,000 years to run. I think it has certainly shown that this new form of computation is possible. It was one step closer to the moment when a fully functioning, supercooled quantum computer will live inside a data center. We were not sure until we did this experiment if it was even possible in practice or how long it was going to take. And, well, it turns out, you know, it's probably sooner than we thought, right? So as we've heard, the end of Moore's Law may actually accelerate new kinds of computing rather than hinder it. And that motivates people like J.P. Clausen, who are building data centers to accommodate these shifts. We are constantly facing like new challenges, constraints, and discovering new inventions internally as well as externally. So the pioneers as Google have done an extraordinary job, in my view, and we can only honor their work by doing our very best to design new technologies that honors our users, employees, and environment. We simultaneously you know, see new development in machine learning, virtual reality, and even quantum compute. And the future of compute needs a different infrastructure, and that's where the advanced technology innovation gets relevant. And that brings us to the question we asked at the beginning of the episode. It seemed fitting for JP. How will these leaps in computing intersect with his vision for building data centers decades from now? 
So I think um, I can I cannot really imagine what it looks like in 20 years based on the you know the past 20 years. But what I can say is that the data centers will definitely look different because within 20 years, with all those uh, great engineers uh, and, and great people that is that cares about how we can solve future problems of course, have developed things that we cannot even imagine today. So I definitely do not expect that uh, our data centers will be so traditional with with what we see today, where we have a steel structure and we have like a shell and we have like some, uh, you know, some mechanical cooling uh, equipment. There will probably be something that is replacing at least some of those subsystems with things that is is, is going to be much more efficient and, and radically different than what we see today. 20 years ago, data centers were messy computers in cages, drowning in stray wires. Now, they're massive warehouses. In the future, they may become more modular. And they'll hold computing networks that can perform tasks exponentially faster than what's feasible today, maybe even leveraging quantum mechanics. And rather than speculate further on that future, let's turn the premise around. By now, you know Carrie Grimes Bostock is a technical expert on computing systems. But she also got her bachelor's degree from Harvard in archaeology. So we asked her, how will future civilizations, many millennia from now, look back on our current data centers? From your perspective as a former archaeology student, when an archaeologist in 10,000 years digs up a data center, what will be the most interesting finding to them about their discovery? You know, it's... It's interesting. This is something that comes up with uh, Mayan archaeology as well, is we often dig things up and we're so far removed from them that we don't even understand what they are, right? I think someone digging up a data center and looking at all those rows of racks from 10,000 years from now would have no idea what they were for. I mean, what would you put in these racks? I would guess that their computers will have advanced to the point that they're I don't know, biotech or, uh, you know, cell level computing or tiny or ubiquitous and floating in the, the air or, you know, nanobots or something, right? Who knows what their computers would look like? They'd probably be looking at our data center going, was this a shop? You know, what do they put in these shelves? <laughs> Why do they have all this mechanical junk? Like, what was this for? You know, maybe it was a very organized dump. At the rate our technology advances, if it kept advancing for a thousand years or 10,000 years, like, I think it'd be unrecognizable, right? That, that there'd be a huge, as there often is in archaeology, debate about what, what was this for? Was this a ritual site? Was this, you know, highly patterned? Uh, did this, you know, represent the world? Was this a map? Like, what was this for? Right? Because I, I suspect they won't even recognize the technology. So for any folks out there listening to this podcast in the year 12,000, please cut us some slack. We're still kind of figuring things out. And that's our show. In fact, that's our series. Where the Internet Lives has been produced by PostScript Audio in collaboration with Google. Our theme music and scoring are by Echo Finch. You can find the show on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you access your podcasts. And please give us a rating if you've enjoyed our journey together. In this episode, you heard from J.P. Clausen, Carrie Grimes-Bostock, Maribel Lopez, Selenevo, 
Partharanganathan, Sergio Boixo, Danny Ma, John Platt, Neha Palmer, Melissa Gray, Joe Cava, Luis Andre Bajoso. And we also want to send out special thanks to Kate Drager, Kara Becker, Gary Damasi, Heather Dooley, Brittany Stagnaro, and Sebastian Curian. And a shout out to JP, who, when he's not advancing tech in the data center, is advancing his home garden. He gave us a little tip on buying a lawnmower, electric robots. I, of course, buy, buy an electrical lawnmower because you can, and then even have some a couple of robots uh, cutting the lawn, right? Because it's you just want to to think about a problem in, in a different way that, that you feel good about, right, really? So bringing that into the data centers are, of course, like a, a parallel, right? If you want to learn more about the physical infrastructure of the internet, go check out google.com slash data centers. It's been a real joy venturing with you into where the internet lives. Very few people get to explore these machines behind the scenes, and I hope we've given you a better understanding of how it all works. I'm Barry Fisher. Thanks for listening.